0: Michael, welcome to Gnostic Media's podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: I'm I'm doing quite well. I'm in good, uh, humorous spirits today <clears throat> after, uh, regardless of having to record this interview with you twice today, unfortunately, but I think, uh, you know... Uh, just to let the audience know, we just recorded this whole thing, and the recording was lost, so we're back again. But anyway, thank you so much for being a part of the show, and thank you so much for being a good sport about the recording being lost.
1: Well, you know, as I say, you know, a lot of worse things could happen, and it's all a matter of, of perspective. Right. So- well, I think I think it was because I, I had my uh, accident where I fell off the roof and tore my quadricep tendon. And so in comparison, this, you know, any small problem seemed like nothing, you know, as long as I can still walk after a problem, I'm not too, too sad about it.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So would you like to start off by telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what's the proper pronunciation of your last name?
1: Sure. Um, my name is Mike, uh, Labossier or Labossier or anything close I've learned to, to accept. Uh, Years ago, when I was running track in college, they would call the names of the people as they came through, and they would say, like, you know, Sam Smith from Muskingum, you know, uh, Tim Jones from Oberlin, Mike La La, some guy from Marietta. And so I've gotten accustomed to the (laughs) various uh, butcherings of my names. But I'm originally from, from Maine. I went to school for my undergraduate in Merida College in Ohio. It's a little tiny college right on the border of West Virginia. And there I studied philosophy and political science. And I liked philosophy quite a bit, so I decided to go on and do my graduate degree at Ohio State University. And while there, I got my PhD in philosophy, primarily specializing in metaphysics, but I also took classes in logic, uh, ethics, and intro to philosophy. And while there, I learned a lot about philosophy, and I learned a lot about the power of football. (laughs) After that, (laughs) I I took a job at uh, Florida uh, A&M University. Uh, historically uh, black uh, college and uh, university, rather, here in Tallahassee, Florida. And I've been teaching there ever since, and I've, I rather enjoy it. And in addition to my interest in philosophy and logic and so forth, I also um, have an av- avid runner. Uh, in fact, this morning I just had a, had a 5K, uh, won the first place in the educator class. And I also, um, you know, obviously like computers and so forth play a little bit too much World of Warcraft and do a little writing on the side. so a lot of some good hobbies, some bad hobbies. And what's the title of your book? Oh, my book is um, uh, titled What Don't You Know?, and it's essentially a, a collection of essays that I've written, uh, and they're on a wide variety of topics, things like the existence of God, evolution, ethics, privacy rights, uh, you know, things about art and so forth. And it's designed to be appealing to the the general reader, people who are interested in philosophy but haven't got, uh, you know, doctor degrees in it and who have, you know, would like to read a little bit about a variety of things without having to go into a great deal of um, you know, incredible effort, trying to puzzle through needlessly complex and convoluted language.: plus it, it does a great job propping up tables. Uh, it works really well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so well, you know i I could use, I have a table that could use some propping up it's the, It's the
1: perfect book <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: How did you get involved in logic what What sparked your interest, I should say, in logic and critical thinking?
1: I think my first encounter w- with it was primarily like when I was an undergraduate I took a a, a class, a basic class from uh, Professor Sarah Shute, and I found the whole idea of reasoning well pretty interesting and then one of the philosophy majors actually did something quite interesting there she did a like a a one person play involving a uh, you know a woman who's being asked to to, to marry someone, and she goes through the person's marriage proposal and presents all the fallacies that he's committing when he makes the proposal. And I thought that was pretty cool, and it just kind of uh, stuck ever since. And of course, I like the idea of you know not making bad reasoning. Although, like most people, I do occasionally ma- you know make some pretty stupid decisions. Like earlier, I mentioned my uh, quadriceps tendon tear, and you know a while back uh, it was raining, my skylight was leaking. And the logical thing to do, of course, would be to stay inside and wait for highly trained professionals to go up there and deal with it. But no, I decided to go up there and do that. And so I fell off, you know, popped my quadricep tendon, got to experience, you know, the uh, surgery and so forth. But it shows that even people who are supposedly professionals at Logic do a lot of stupid stuff. So one important lesson about reasoning is no matter how smart you think you are, you're not. And I've learned that myself the hard way.
0: That's funny. You're still human regardless.
1: Yes, I, I
0: think so. the idea is learning how to critically think and, and think intelligently, not that, that we're infallible, but it's uh, being able to put things in a scientific methodology so that we can realize in a, in a proper structured way how our minds work, what we're doing. And when we do make mistakes, it's much easier for us to look back and reflect on them and say, ah, this is where I went wrong. This is what I did.
1: Yes, it's in a way it's a lot like exercise. When you exercise, you know, and eat well, it doesn't mean you'll never ever get sick or have any problems, but it means in general you're less likely to have those problems. And when you do run to those problems, you tend to recover, you know, more quickly and you suffer less, which is, you know, a pretty good a pretty good thing. All right. Well, let's
0: dive in. Why don't we start off with ad hominem?
1: All right. And ad hominem is a, a classic uh, mistake. The basic idea, the literal translation from the Latin, means against the man or against the person. And the basic idea is, instead of attacking the person's claim, what is attacked is the person themselves. And there are a few varieties of this. For example, one common version is known as the personal attack, where what is done is, instead of attacking the person's claim, Something about the person is attacked instead. And the reason why this is bad reasoning is because even though there's an attempt at a premise, that is to say an attempt at evidence, the evidence actually is not relevant to the claim being made, which is called in logic the conclusion. So the person is trying to say that the person's claim is false, that's their their conclusion, and they're doing it, though, on the basis of evidence, the premises, that don't actually connect. So, for example... Okay. Go
0: ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say so if somebody for instance they they might say well this person is a political activist so anything that they say about finance is false.
1: Yes, that would be a personal personal attack. Uh, another example from my own experience years ago when I was a freshman in college I was a, you know a diehard uh, liberal and so forth and it was when uh, Reagan was running for office and I was involved in a debate over you know over that issue. We decided to have like a, you know, a mock election on campus and we had, you know, a faculty student team for Republicans and Democrats. And I was arguing, you know, uh, why we shouldn't vote for Reagan. And a, one of the professors, another team got up and said, the freshman has his facts wrong. And it essentially it was an ad hominem because he was attacking me, not because, not on the basis of my errors, but on the basis that I was a freshman. Therefore I, you know, I clearly could not, could not know things. And so, I mean, it turned out I lost, and you know, because Reagan got elected. But uh, the fact <laughs> that I was a freshman was not relevant. There's also um, another version of the ad hominem, is known as the um, the ad hominem uh, two quote, also known as the U uh, two fallacy, not in the sense of U two like the you know, the rock band or the classic spy plane, but in the sense of U um, two like you also. And this one has two variations. It's sometimes called also the inconsistency ad hominem. The first version occurs when someone says that a a person is doing one thing but saying another, and these two things are in contrast or inconsistent or contradictory, therefore what they say must be mistaken. Now, from the standpoint of trying to persuade people, it's a good idea to make one's actions match one's words. For example, if I tell my students that they need to be on time, it's probably a good idea for me to be on time to class. But what a person says and what they do are logically distinct. So if a person says one thing while doing another, their claim could still be quite correct. For example, uh, years ago when I was at Ohio State, I had two students who battled all the time in my ethics class. And they asked, you know, could we just do a formal debate? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, that'd be a pretty good idea. You know, instead of me talking all the time, you could have a chance to talk. So one student comes in, he's dressed entirely in leather. He's got leather pants, a leather shirt, a leather jacket, a leather hat. I didn't ask about the underwear because that's one of those things you really don't, don't want to know about. And he also had a big roast beef sandwich. And he sits down and presents this eloquent case for why we should not eat meat, why we should not wear leather, why we should be kind to animals. And his opponent comes in, wearing plastic flip-flops, this is back before Crocs, so he only had flip-flops as is, is an option, wearing polyester clothing and eating a salad. And he gave a very eloquent argument, very good argument, in favor of eating meat, while we're obligated to do so and make clothing out of animals. And at the end of the debate, another student got up and said, You can't say that. You you there, you're sitting there wearing leather arguing for animal rights, so you're wrong. You there, you're arguing, uh, you know, for you know, eating meat, but you're eating a salad, and you're wearing plastic flip-flops, so you're wrong." And they both smiled at each other and said, no, we're not wrong, we're just hypocrites. And they were right. The fact that a person claims one thing, but does another, doesn't disprove their claim. So, for example, if Tiger Woods got up there in a commercial, talking about the importance of family values and loyalty to one's spouse, what he did doesn't disprove his claim. It just shows that he would be a bit of a hypocrite, but still a very good golfer, nonetheless. <laughs>
0: right. What is a appeal
1: to authority? An appeal to authority actually, in a way, has two faces. There's a good face and a bad face. Now, back in the really old days, you know, the time of people like Socrates and back when i was a kid uh, a person could know you know a lot of stuff for example someone like aristotle knew stuff about wrote stuff about biology about physics and so on and a person could be an expert in a huge range of fields but today of course there's so much stuff so much information that none of us can claim to be experts on more than a very limited set of information So we often have to rely on authorities in making arguments. Now, a good argument from authority, one that's not a fallacy, is when a person argues that a claim is correct because an authority has said so. For example, if someone is arguing about something in physics and they appeal to the authority of Stephen Hawkins, that's probably a good argument because he's a well-established authority. Now, the fallacy occurs when the alleged authority is either not an authority because they lack the education, experience, and knowledge to be an authority, or in some way their credibility is in question. For example, they may be biased in some manner. So if someone is making an argument about healthcare and they refer to, say, a doctor who is employed by the insurance companies or the pharmaceutical companies, then the person's credibility would be in question. It wouldn't prove. That the person's claims are false, but the fact that they're biased, that they have a financial stake in it, would make their claims less credible. So in order to assess an argument from authority, you've got to determine, is the expert really an expert? Do they have the education? Do they have the experience? And very importantly, are they biased?
0: And I would think to add on top of that, that if that authority's authority is in question itself, then referring to that authority would not be... Uh, a a valid argument. You would have to look at the evidence against that authority first and then refute that instead of referring to that same authority to support your argument.
1: Right. You know, if someone's, uh, you know, questioning somebody's authority, like let's say some political pundit says something and someone says, well, he's right because he says this. And of course, he's an authority, so you can believe him. And if someone says, well, how do we know he's credible? And they say, well, he said this, that would be, uh, we'll see this later, but the known is begging the question. Right. uh, and, so and I think another
0: one is, this might be appeal to tradition, but another one that people use here in the uh, appeal to authority is, well, this group has been in existence for 100 years. They can't be wrong.
1: Yes. Yeah, that would be essentially saying they're an authority simply because they're, you know, they've been around for a while. And that would, of course, the mere fact, that someone's been around for a while, doesn't mean they're automatically in authority. They could be wrong uh, for a very long time.
0: Right, yeah. Like you were saying earlier, this professor accusing you of being a freshman, so therefore you you can't be right. That's like saying that uh, somebody who's new to any field or is not a part of these 100-year-old schools or whatever it might be can't be correct because the school is older.
1: Right, and if I were to say to a student, I'm correct because I'm old, that, that wouldn't fall at all. Being old just means, well, you're old, and that's about it doesn't mean you're right or or wrong. Appeal to belief. Appeal to belief is a, a classic one. And it's very seductive in a way, because as human beings, we have a natural tendency to want to believe what people around us believe. We tend to go along with the group for good or for bad. And the fallacy is this. It's when a person accepts that a claim is true, not based on actual evidence but based on the on the claim that most or all people believe this claim. So to use the classic example, if someone were to say of course the earth is flat everyone believes it's flat that's clearly a, a mistake. the mere fact that everyone believes something doesn't make it it true. Now there are two exceptions to this particular fallacy. First, there are cases in which people's belief, literally makes things true. For example, if we t- take things like etiquette, the reason why it's true that it's polite to say hello when you pick up the phone or put the fork in the particular place where the fork goes, is it, not because it's an eternal truth handed down by you know, God, or eternal order. It's simply because we say so. So it's true that it's polite to say hello because we say so. So that would not be a fallacy to believe that. The second exception is that there are cases, going back to appeal to authority, where if a person believes it, the fact that the person is credible and can be considered an authority doesn't you know, make the claim true, but gives us a reason to believe that it's true. And in many cases, normal people, everyday average people, can be authorities ab- about various subjects. For example, suppose you decide to go on vacation in the great state of Maine where I happen to be from. And it's not because, you know, I get like a free lobster from the tourist bureau every time I send somebody to the state. Nothing to do with that. And suppose you go decide to go on vacation there. And you ask some of the people in the park, does this park close at sunset? And they say to you, yes, yes, it does. Now, if you believe them, you haven't fallen prey to a fallacy because you have no reason to think they're lying. They probably know. And so that would not be a fallacy. The fallacy occurs, though, when people simply say, most or all people believe this, therefore it's true, and it doesn't fall into one of those two exceptions. And it's a very appealing fallacy because people, again, tend to want to believe what they think everyone else believes. Appeal to common practice. Uh, Appeal to common practice is kind of the brother or sister of appeal to belief. In the case of appeal to belief, The idea is basically that a claim is true because people believe it, which is a mistake. In the case of appeal to common practice, the mistake being made is that someone accepts, reasons or infers that a claim is correct or practice is correct simply because it's common. So if someone were to say, sure, it's okay to cheat on your taxes, everyone believes it, that would be appeal to belief. If someone were to say, you know, suppose I'm thinking about doing my taxes, and I'm like, well, you know, I probably should pay all my taxes, but I'm pretty sure pretty much everyone cheats on their taxes, so it's okay okay for me to do it, that'd be an appeal to common practice. And the reason why this is a fallacy is because the mere fact that a lot of people do it, or most people do it, doesn't make it true, correct, or right. because the majority of people could be wrong. A
0: million people can be wrong.
1: Yes, and the odds that they probably are. I mean, one of my uh, friends in grad school used to always reverse that. He, he'd always say what most people believe is probably wrong.
0: Right, and I've, <laughs> that's I, not to make another common uh, logical fallacy, but that seems to be more often than true than not. Um. <clears throat>
1: Appeal to consequence of belief. This is also a fairly common fallacy. The idea basically is this. When someone makes this mistake, they're most likely confusing a practical reason to believe or accept or do something and a logical reason. And this is the uh, foundation of a lot of mistakes in reasoning. Now, in many cases, something can give us a practical reason to do or not do something. In other words, to avoid you know, harm or gain some benefit. But the potential harms or benefits of a belief don't actually have any bearing on its truth or falsity. An appeal to the consequence of a belief is when a person falls into this, this problem. Here's the idea. It occurs when someone says that a belief must be accepted or rejected because if people didn't accept it or reject it, there would be terrible consequences. To give a, a common example, many times when I've argued about uh, ethics and religion and so forth, people have argued that we have to believe in God because if we didn't believe in God, then we would have no basis for ethics, and for if ethics. we had no, yeah, if we had no basis for ethics, then we'd all behave badly. We'd be in some sort of horrible, you know, Mad Max kind of world where people were just doing all kinds of horrible, horrible things. Now. If that were true, that would give us a good practical reason to convince people to believe in God. So, for example, if we knew for a fact that if there are more atheists, that everything would go to hell in a handbasket, we'd have a practical reason to, to make people believe. But logically, it doesn't prove that it's true. The mere fact that there would be bad consequences for not believing doesn't make the belief correct, even if there really were bad consequences. Appeal
0: to emotion.
1: Uh, appeal to emotion can be seen as sort of a general sort of fallacy with all the sorts of different feelings falling under it. Now to sort of set the stage for it, emotions themselves aren't fallacies because they're not reasons or arguments. We just simply feel what we feel, and when we feel something, we just feel it. Now the fallacy itself is this, it's when someone takes an emotion, you know, for example, fear, anger pity, and they accept that as evidence for a claim when it actually is not. And that's a mistake being made. Now there are a variety of these, pretty much one for every emotion. For example, one fairly common one is what's known as appeal to fear or scare tactics, or in the Latin uh, ad baculum. And the idea is basically this. What a person does Is to try to get someone to accept a claim, they don't give a logical reason for it, they try to create or invoke fear in the person. And their hope is that the person will accept the claim on that basis. For example, it can be something as crude as a direct threat, believe this or, you know, you'll be, you'll be hurt or killed. It can also be more, a more subtle sort of threat. For example, uh, take, for example, the various, um, oh, uh, you know, hair dyeing or, you know, um, products like deodorant and so forth, and they use a subtle sort of scare tactics. For example, one I saw recently, it shows like an older person uh, going out on a date, and they have gray hair, and they go back to the woman's, you know, apartment, and he's like, hey, can I come in for coffee? And she's like, oh, no, you know, and she you know, closes the door and he goes home alone. But then it shows him, you know, doing his hair and you know dyeing it back to, you know, the young color. And of course she invites him in. So the idea is basically buy our product or you'll be alone forever. It's a subtle sort of scare tactic. It's also used a so, lot in pollen. Oh, go ahead.
0: Well marketing is is basically the instead of teaching people how to use logic, they're intentionally using the the antithesis of logic to manipulate people for marketing.
1: Yes. And interestingly enough, or boringly enough, one thing I always tell my students is that if you want to persuade someone, if you want to sell a product, sell an idea, sell a politician, ironically, one of the best ways to do this is to use fallacies. For example, uh, in politics, Appeal to fear, scare tactics, and so forth is a common thing. You make people afraid and get them to accept things similarly like you know like with the selling the uh, you know the hair dye selling deodorant and dandruff shampoo that 's based on scaring people and the reason why people do it is because it it works it works very well so sort of on the side of evil, if you want to persuade people, mastering fallacies is a very useful skill if you want to defend against being emotionally manipulated knowing about fallacies is very useful. And so because... that
0: it, it, to level the playing field, basically everybody needs to know this stuff. And that's really what we're trying to, to get at is create a, a mem of critical thinking so that it levels the playing field. So then it becomes more of a, a fun game instead of manipulation and lying and warfare and all of these political games and, and things that become a larger part of the problem.
1: Yeah, quite right. It's it's like a um, to use an analogy, it's sort of like learning self-defense. You know, you can protect yourself, or like getting the you know the flu shot. There are all these like bad diseases of advertising trying to infect us, and if we don't know, if we don't know, you know, logic and fallacies and so forth, we're wide open. It's like having no no immune system, and we we can be victims of anything that happens to come along, especially our emotions, because emotions like fear. Uh, in the case of, you know, scare tactics are very powerful. Emotions like anger are very powerful. And even... Yeah, there's positive, a, a appeal
0: to anger, right? Do you want to go to that one real quick?
1: Yes. Um, so the appeal to anger, uh, again, the, uh, the basic idea is that what a person does is substitute uh, something that's intended to create anger in place of actual evidence for a claim. So, for example, a person might uh, invoke the notion of death penalties in regards to health care even though there's no actual you know, basis for that, in the hopes that people will become angry and be willing to accept the claim that they should oppose healthcare. Now, again, as I mentioned before, the defense against these appeals, anger, um, fear, etc., or even positive emotions like pity, is not to get rid of emotions, but to be aware of how we feel and have an awareness of those, and to ask ourselves, okay, I feel really angry about this, or wow, that scares the hell out of me but to ask yourself, do does this actually give me a reason? You know, sure, that's pretty scary, but does this give me a reason to accept this claim? Or, man, that makes me so angry, but does that give me a reason to reject this claim? Now, appeals to emotion can be positive as well. For example, a person might appeal to pity and uh, say that, you know, make an appeal to someone's compassion. And this sort of fallacy occurs when someone uh, substitutes something intended to create pity in place of evidence. Probably most, my most extreme example was from years ago when I first started teaching. I was teaching uh, a class on aesthetics, theories of art and beauty and so forth, and I was giving the final. And I was in a classroom with two you know, doors uh, from the outside and another set of doors on the inside and somebody comes walking through, and the whole class stops and looks at them, giving the look of, like, who's this person we've never seen before? And as he walks by, he drops off a note on my desk, and I unfold it, and it says, Dear Professor Lambrugier, and I've never gone to class, and I've never done anything, but I really need an A to graduate and get on to my career. I'd really appreciate it if, if you could see in your heart to give me this A. And, of course, that was an appeal to pity, because the fact that you know, he'd be really sad if he didn't graduate, doesn't give me a reason to give him an A. But I must say that I did respect his audacity. You know, anyone else would have asked for a C, but he went right for the A. (laughs) All right. Appeal to flattery. Appeal to flattery is essentially exactly what it sounds like. You know, all of us, of course. We enjoy being praised. We enjoy people saying, you know, how nice we look or how smart we are or how eloquent we are or how nice our car is or how good we look in a bathing suit. We like that kind of stuff. Now, if someone takes flattery and puts it in the place of evidence and gets people to accept a claim, that would be this fallacy because someone is accepting flattery as evidence for a claim. For example, suppose there's a class on Plato. And one of the uh, students, you know, hasn't got um, got his paper done, and he goes up to the professor and says, you know, Professor Jones, you know, I've been working hard on this paper, writing a defense of your view against the foolish people who attack you. But your view is so complex and so true and so compelling that I just can't do it justice in the time we have. So if I could only have another week to write the paper, I'm sure I could do you justice. And so the person is basically saying is, you know, here I am kissing your butt, therefore I deserve another week on the paper. But it's essentially an appeal to flattery. Now, it's also important to distinguish between this fallacious appeal to flattery and merely being nice to people. So, for example, if you say to someone, you know, um, why that's a nice suit or really good job on that presentation, and you're just, just praising them, that's not a, a fallacy. The way to guard against it is not to reject all praise, but to carefully distinguish between, you know, normal praise and attempts to flatter, to get someone to accept a claim just on the basis of this, you know, of this uh, flattery. Appeal to novelty. Appeal to novelty rests on a view that's, you know, fairly common in the West, namely that what is newer is better. Now, there are things of course that are newer that can be better. For example, the laptop I'm using now, except for its tendency to go into a blue screen of death, is better than my old Commodore 64. Uh, not because but it's not better because it's new. It's better because it all has all these components and you know addition, you know, more power, more memory, et cetera. But people often fall into the view that if something is old, it's outdated. And what's new, therefore, must be better. And this is often um, done like in business and academics. For example, uh, having been on various committees, uh, people will come in and say, well, we have this new method of assessment, and it's really, really good. And I'll be like, well, why is it good? And I'll say, well, it's new. And I'm like, well, that's not really a good reason. And the mere fact that it's like the latest new or newest thing doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it bad, but it doesn't make it good. So the mere fact that something's new doesn't necessarily mean that it is, in fact, improved.
0: Appeal to popularity.
1: Uh, appeal to popularity is kind of a variation on the appeal to belief. The idea is basically that something is correct or true or right simply because it's popular, simply because everyone accepts it or believes it. And just like with the appeal to belief, the mere fact that something is popular Popular doesn't mean necessarily that it is true or correct. I mean, to use kind of a silly example, just because uh, someone's the popular kid in school doesn't mean that they're the the best kid or the correct or, or right. And the way to defend against this is the same way to defend against an appeal to belief. Basically, ask yourself, okay, this is popular, most people seem to accept it, but does it make it true, correct, or right? So if people say, for example, if there's a poll that says, Americans overwhelmingly want healthcare reform. Does that mean it's a good idea? Well, it may be, it may not be. But the mere fact that people, it's popular with people, doesn't make it necessarily true or false.
0: Appeal to ridicule—that's got to be a common one. Oh
1: yes. Um, the basic idea in this—it appeals to you know the fact that people don't like being being mocked and don't want to associate with people being mocked. For example, like back in junior high, you know the kid that everybody pointed at and laughed at. In general, you wouldn't want to be around that kid because the mockery against that person would kind of spill over to you. And the idea this is also sometimes known as um, the horse laugh or appeal to, to mockery. The idea is to substitute mockery, laughter, or humor in the place of evidence. And while this can be entertaining and amusing, the fact that something is being mocked or made fun of doesn't prove that it's false, however entertaining it might be. Uh, for example, you know, on the Daily Show, on the Colbert Report, uh, both uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert are extremely good at presenting things and making them seem to be very funny and very absurd, to mock things. Now, even if they present a truly brilliant graphic making fun of something, you know, presenting it like in the word or presenting, you know, a clever, um, you know, thing like Mesopotamia or something. It doesn't prove or just prove anything. It simply entertains. Now, of course, what a person can do, comedy, And Stephen Colbert uh, and John Stewart again are are very good at this. Can be used to actually effectively criticize things because if you can show that something is in fact laughable or absurd, and even though it makes people laugh, showing that it is absurd and laughable can be a reasonable criticism. So if um, you know someone presents you know a plan or a view, and even though they're making fun of it they show that it actually is pretty foolish and ridiculous, then that would actually be a legitimate argument. Because one thing that people often make the mistake of believing is that being logical or making a good argument means it has to be lifeless, dull, and boring. But it doesn't have to be. just often is. And so you can include things like humor and persuasive devices and rhetoric and so forth in a good argument. The only thing is, of course, that all that extra stuff doesn't make the argument any better, but it makes it more interesting to hear. And there's no requirement to be boring when you're arguing, although many philosophers seem to think otherwise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> appeal to spite.
1: Appeal to spite is a classic one. It's, um, for example, if you go back to the old Aesop's Fable about the sour gra- grapes, that'd be an example of appeal to spite in some ways. The basic idea is when a person, you know, uh, rejects a claim based on feelings of spite, based on that rejection. Uh, one way to look at it again is the case of the, the sour grapes, so the fox. You know, the person uh, can't get what they want, so they simply act in a spiteful manner and say, "Well, I guess it's not very, very good, anyways." They reject something out of not out of reasons, but as the fallacy says, merely out of out of spite. And spite's, you know, a powerful, a powerful feeling, a powerful emotion.
0: Appeal to tradition.
1: Interestingly enough, this is kind of the reverse of appeal to novelty. While on one hand, our society, especially, you know, people who are are younger, they like the new, the novel. But there's also a strong tendency to reject and fear the new and the novel. So it's sort of this weird, you know, uh, dichotomy or, you know, thesis, uh, antithesis in our, our society
0: that... We... Insert, insert Terence McKenna here.
1: <laughs> that, uh, you know, we, we, we want the new, we fear the new, we want the old, we fear the old. And so the idea of the appeal to Tradition is to believe, to accept as a reason for accepting a claim that, or practice or procedure, that it's been around a long time. So, for example, a person might say... In the debate, one thing I commonly hear in the debate over a same-sex marriage, people will say marriage has always been between a man and a woman, not between a man and a man. You know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now while that may be true, that there's long tradition of marriage between a man and a woman, the mere fact that it's been done a long time, that it's a tradition, doesn't make it true. For example, murder is a very old tradition so is genocide, so is racism, so is slavery. Slavery's been around a long time. But you won't hear people saying, well, slavery's been around a long time, so it's okay. Or, you know, uh, genocide's been around a long time, so it's okay. I mean, you do hear a few people say that.
0: Well, I, I heard somebody argue yesterday that, well, all things are based in slavery at some point, so therefore, you know, using slavery as a as an, a reason not to do something is invalid.
1: Now, that's um, kind of a genetic fallacy right there, which we'll talk about later. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the Peel's tradition is basically, again, that someone says, well, this is the way things have been done. It's the way it's 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 always been done. Therefore, it's correct. And again, the mere fact that it's been around a long time doesn't make it necessarily true or correct. Because people can do stupid things for a really long, long, long time.
0: Gee, do you really think so?
1: <laughs> I think so. I think I think my experience I think bears that out quite nicely.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just thinking various uh, dogmas and things come to mind. That yeah, for 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 millennia, in fact, um, bandwagon.
1: Uh, the bandwagon is kind of a um, you know an old timer one. Back in the days before the before internet, even before radio, um, TV. The way politicians or people would advertise stuff is they would get a wagon, stick a band on it, you know, put some banners and stuff, and they would you know, go through the center of town, attracting people's attention. Now this particular uh, fallacy involves the following sort of bad reasoning. If a person accepts a claim or a candidate or a policy or procedure, not on the basis of its merit, not because it's correct or likely to be true, but simply because it's likely to win then they're making this mistake. Now, again, this uh, goes back to the distinction between a practical reason and a logical reason. From a practical standpoint, it's not very good being a loser. It's generally better to be on the winning side. But from a logical standpoint, the side that's winning or the candidate that's winning or the proposal that's winning need not be correct. The mere fact that it's winning just means that it's winning. It doesn't mean it's...
0: Right, yeah, they're they're not... They're not arguing for truth. They're arguing to be right or to win.
1: Yes So for a practical standpoint a person could say well, I want to be on this side because it's winning And they don't make any logical error. But if they say well This side is correct because it's winning Then they're making that mistake because to say that it's true because it's winning Would be an error because as we've seen throughout history um, Ideas that are, are later shown to be mistaken were winning for a while but Now we know that they're not correct. So merely winning for a while doesn't make something true.
0: Right. And I believe the, the, well, I think probably with all of these, but uh, the sophists certainly come to mind here.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, the classic uh, sophists, their view was because they rejected the notion of, you know, of truth, objective truth and objective ethics. So their view was what mattered was success. And for, you know, a fair amount of silver, they would teach people how to be effective rhetoricians, how to argue, you know, and gain power and sway the masses. And their view was actually very consistent because if you have the view that there is no truth, there is no morality, then it would seem that what you do is simply whatever you regard as being best for you because there's really no objective objective standard by which to assess it.
0: There's actually some underlying humor there that the sophists would ask for silver, but I'll leave, those, <laughs> I'll leave that for something else later. Um, let's go to uh, begging the question.
1: Ah, begging the question. This is also known as circular reasoning, and sometimes known by the very odd Latin name of Petito um, Principle. The idea in this, it's probably best uh, exemplified by circular reasoning, is that what a person does is they assume as true what they in fact need to prove. And so the mistake they're making is if they have to prove it, they just can't assume that it's true. And the classic example of this is a favorite of parents everywhere. You know, if they tell their kid, you know, you, you, you can't do that, and the kid says, well, why are you right? And the parent says, I'm right because I say I'm right. That would be this fallacy. It's uh, one that parents have used for quite some time.
0: That was my parents' favorite one. It's
1: very effective. It works every time because we all turned out to be, you know, to do just what our parents said didn't turn out exactly as they hoped.
0: <laughs> you know what, though? So far I've been pretty good at not using that on my son. When my son asked me why, I always try and explain explain, explain it to him because that just always infuriated me when my parents gave me that answer.
1: I do the same thing with my students. I'll often tell them, I'll say, I don't do this because when I was a student, I really hated that, so I'm not going to do that to you. And they're like kind of shocked, like, wow. (laughs) Now, uh, a more sort of philosophical example of begging the question would be something a little more complex, would be something like this. Suppose someone's um, discussing God, and they say to their friend, I've got proof that God exists. And the friend says, wow, that's pretty cool, let me know. How does this work? And the person says, well, God exists because I have this book, that shows that God exists. It's called the Bible. And suppose a person's friend says back, "Well, that's interesting, but there's all kinds of books about all kinds of things. For example, I have a book at home, you know, *The Lord of the Rings*, which has um, talks about elves and dragons and so forth. But the mere fact that it's in a book doesn't make it true. So how do I know that this is actually, you know, correct?" And the person says back, "Well, of course you can trust the book. It's written by God, and of course you can trust God. And that begs a question because." The question is, does God exist? And saying that there's a book written by God that proved God exists, and you can believe the book because God wrote it, begs the question. It assumes what has to be proven, namely whether God exists or not. And, of course, you can have really extreme begging the questions. For example, uh, one of the people on my dissertation committee said when he did the first draft of his dissertation, you know, a couple hundred pages, his adv- advisor says, pretty good job, but the whole thing begs the question. And that was... That's the last thing you one of the last things you want to hear after you've written a couple hundred pages.
0: Oh, what a tremendous waste of time. Indeed.
1: Biased sample. Uh biased sample or biased journalization. Basic idea is this. When taking a sample and doing a poll, what a person has to do is basically make sure that the sample or poll is large enough and also representative. If a sample is not um, not representative, it obviously won't capture the entire population. So if a person uh, engages in a conclusion based on a sample that is biased, their result is not going to be very good. For example, um, suppose someone wants to know about what people think about gun ownership and, you know, in the United States. And they go and they send you know, a survey or a poll to members of the NRA. And it comes back that you know, 100% of them favor gun ownership. Now, that sample, of course, is rather biased because obviously people who are in the NRA would tend to favor owning guns. Now, people often use, if you ever wondered how, like, groups like, you know, people who are pro-gun can find surveys that, you know, show that most Americans are pro-gun. People who are anti-gun can find surveys that show Americans are anti-gun. People who are pro-healthcare can find surveys that show Americans are pro-healthcare, and people who are against it can find surveys against it. Now, one possibility is they're just making this stuff up. Another way to do it, of course, is to use a a biased sample. The idea is basically to get the result that you want. You target your sample the way you want it to be. So if you want, say, the result to be pro-gun, you send the survey or sample to people who you, you know will probably be pro-gun. If you want to get a result that's, say, pro-reform, you send out the survey or sample to those who are pro-reform. And the reason why it's a mistake is because if you want to know, you know, what people or something in general, you know, think or how things in general are, you've got to have a sample that's representative. Otherwise, your results won't be accurate. Burden of proof. The burden of proof. Now when arguing and debating, one thing you don't want on yourself is the burden of proof. If you have the burden of proof on you, you're the one that has to do the proving, and the other side can simply sit back and be assumed to be correct. Now the fallacy occurs, the mistake occurs, when the burden of proof is put on the wrong side. In other words, the person who is supposed to do the proving isn't doing it, instead the burden is put on the person who doesn't have to do this. Now, this raises the obvious question, who gets the burden of proof? Now, there are three standards that are typically used. The first one is known as initial plausibility. The idea there is, how likely is it, before it's been investigated, that the claim is true? And the side that's got the initial plausibility doesn't get the burden of proof, because if their position is more plausible, we don't expect them to be the ones to have to prove it. For example, or or to be the opposite, if the side has the lower uh, initial plausibility, it gets the burden of proof. So if someone claims that they're abducted by aliens, for example, the burden of proof is on them, because their claim has a very low initial plausibility. Of course, what counts as plausible or not is a matter of great contention, because people believe what they believe has a great deal of plausibility. And so this can lead to serious debates about who's got the plausibility and who doesn't. The second thing is affirmative versus negative. Back when I did uh, debate in high school and college, the idea was that the status quo could assume to be be assumed to be the default position. And if you're arguing against the status quo, it was up to you to prove that there had to be a change. And this can be seen as sort of like a conservative you know, um, you know, leaning, but the idea is that the way things are, are assumed to be what is assumed and arguments against those are the ones that have to do the proving or so it's claimed.
0: So in other words, if let's say somebody has written a book and they're presenting an argument against that book, the burden of and they present all of their citations and everything and they say here's my book and it's against whatever theory somebody who is attacking that work it would be there uh, they would be responsible for providing the burden of proof against the book and the citations that are presented
1: yes if you know if a book is written like in a field and it's established you know the person is a credible author their case is credible, you know, reasonably unbiased, well-supported, if someone's attacking that view, the, the burden of proof is, they can't say, well, let's assume this person is, is wrong. They have to actually show the person is, is wrong.
0: Right, without making ad hominem attacks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yes, Yeah. so they would have to, you know, show that the person's case is mistaken. For example, um, I mean, you can take the case of uh, global warming. And the general consensus among scientists is, it's real, it's happening, we're causing it. And if someone argues against that, the burden of proof is on them, because a general you know, scientific consensus has established that it's pr- the most plausible hypothesis. And so even though you can argue against it, the burden of proof rests on, on the person who, who is arguing against the established you know, scientific viewpoint. This is not to say that the establishment is always correct, but the idea is that once it's been you know properly put through the scientific method, tested and established, you just can't dismiss it. It has to be argued against to be rejected. The third standard is basically special circumstances. For example, in the American legal system, there's an assumption of innocence, so the burden of proof is on the prosecution. So, for example, if I get arrested for something, I don't know, philosophizing without a license, and it'd be up to the prosecutor to show that I was, you know, guilty of this. And if they can't make their case, I'd be assumed to be innocent. And of course, this varies from country to country. In other places, there's an assumption of of guilt. And so burden of proof is a matter of great contention, which is not surprising, because if you get the burden of proof stuck on you, it's like uh, being forced to run uphill or fight uphill. You've got to do much Much more work, and so from a practical standpoint, you want to stick that to your opponent and avoid having it stuck to you. From a logical standpoint, the challenge is to work out who really deserves it. It's kind of like the check. You know, in a restaurant, you know, if you're gonna, if you only have one check, who's gonna get stuck with that check?
0: Yeah, you know, the the burden of proof, uh, people always try to even – it's such a common thing for people who make an attack on something to negate their burden of proof and try and put it on the person that they're attacking. Well, no, you're wrong, and I'm not going to read your evidence or I'm not going to study anything about your work, but you're wrong, and and you've got to show me, even though this person has already written a book and with their citations or whatever – uh, these type of people will often refuse to look at any of that evidence. And then they'll say, you have to prove to me that that's right, yeah. even though they refuse to look at anything, right?
1: Yeah, I see it a lot in, in blogs. Like I'll, I've got a philosophy blog. I do a couple of them, and I'll present like an argument, and someone will just say, you know, you've got to disprove this. And I'll I'll say, well, like the um, like the the 9/11 conspiracies. So people say, you can't prove that there wasn't explosives and stuff that you know the building was blown up. Uh, my reply back is, well, I'm not an expert on materials or explosives, but the consensus among experts is that the planes really crashed into it and it really destroyed the buildings. It wasn't uh, you know, explosives in there. And so it's
0: actually I think uh the Dutch government uh, recently published a study or there was a study published in Holland that actually did prove that there was thermite there.
1: Really? But of course yeah. of course you know in uh, the Netherlands they you know drugs are legal. So that
0: Oh so yeah, okay. You're right because they couldn't possibly come to a valid decision because of the drugs. They use, they use common sense for things like cannabis and and hemp and marijuana.
1: Exactly. So it destroys their credibility. You know that. that right. Which is, of course, a good example of an ad hominem. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, or, or an ad cannabis in this case.
0: Uh, well, you know, teach their own. If <laughs> you know, if you have it, smoke it. Um, circumstantial ad hominem.
1: Ah, oh, this one is speaking of ad hominems. This is um, you know, a form of ad hominem, so it's an attack on the person. But what makes it circumstantial is the attack is not directly on a person's characteristics, like being a jerk or whatever. It's on their circumstances. For example, the way I usually divide personal attack from circumstantial is that with a personal attack, it's something sort of intrinsic to the person, like being a jerk or, or being like a man or a woman. Whereas the circumstances, one way to characterize it, it's something the person belongs to voluntarily, for example, being in a political party or church or being, say, a college freshman, for example, uh, and the person's attacked on those grounds. So if someone says, you know, the freshman's got his facts wrong, with the implication being that, you know, I'm mistaken because I was a freshman, that'd be like a circumstantial ad hominem. It's often done in cases where the person's circumstances would seem to bias the person. For example, if someone says, yeah, you know, Jane gives a really good argument about uh, why the small business tax should be reduced, and she says, you know, it will benefit the economy, blah, 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 but we all know that Jane owns that little bookstore down on Main Street, so her argument is clearly wrong, and that'd be a circumstantial ad hominem because the mere fact that she's a small business owner and stands to benefit from, you know, reduced tax doesn't mean she's mistaken. It doesn't mean she's right, but doesn't mean she's mistaken.
0: It could imply that there might be a conflict of interest that would need to be investigated on a separate level.
1: Right, because if you can show that someone's, you know, there's a possibility of bias, going back to appeal to authority, if the person points out that, you know, Jane owns the bookstore and benefits from it, it doesn't prove she's wrong, but it does raise, you know, the obvious concern that she, she may very well be biased in this manner. But, of course, if her arguments are good, her arguments are good. You know, regardless of, of whether she stands to benefit or not.
0: Composition.
1: Ah, I don't uh, call this the I used to call this the grandmother fallacy. It's the view that when someone takes what is true of the parts must be true of the whole. For example, I remember years ago, my grandmother, when I was a kid, my grandmother served me some sort of casserole thing, which of course I hated, and she said, "But you like, you know, you like you like the, you know, the meat, you like the green beans, you like the potatoes," but I said, "Well, I but I don't like them all together." And it was years, you know, when I, I went to college that I learned what fallacy this was: the fallacy of composition, to assume what is true of the um, parts must be true of the whole. Uh, to use a more, slightly more serious example. Suppose um, you take some really great basketball players, and someone says, well, these, we have all these all-stars on our basketball team, on our Olympic team, therefore they'll be a great team. Well, as we found out when we didn't win the gold that one year, you could have great players, but they may not be the best team, because what's true of the individuals may not be true of the whole thing. And so that can be a fairly fairly common mistake.
0: Confusing cause and effect.
1: Uh, This one, the, the name pretty much says it all. The idea is basically a person takes the cause as the effect or the effect as the cause. Now, in some cases, people make this mistake and the mistake, which arises from a lack of caution in causal reasoning, sometimes can be fairly obvious. For example, a person might reason like this. They might look and say, well, people who own homes tend to commit fewer crimes they tend to be, say, more responsible citizens. They tend to be, you know, pay more taxes. They tend to be employed. And a person might say, well, wow, look at this! These homeowners are, you know, good citizens for the most part. Therefore, if we give people, you know, houses, they'll become more responsible. It will lower crime, etc." Now, the problem, of course, is, is that this is reversing cause and effect. People are able to afford, you know, houses. Because in general, they tend to be responsible. They tend to have money and so forth. So it's a reversal. It's not that houses make people more responsible. It's that, in general, when people are responsible to a degree, they're able to get the money and the loans and so forth to get a a house. Now, in the case of the people loaning the money, they're not always so so responsible.
0: To say the least... Uh, division.
1: Division is kind of the um, the cousin of of so, sort of the twin of of composition. Division occurs in the exact opposite way. It's when someone assumes uncritically what is true of the whole thing must be true of the parts. For example, going with the team analogy. For example, if there's a team that's pretty good, and someone says, "Wow, the team's really good, so all the individuals must be must be great," that would be a mistake because Although the team overall is really good, the individuals may not be great. They just may work together pretty well. Or another example would be something like, um, oh, here's kind of a silly example. Um, Cats have color. You can see cats. Cats are made of atoms. Therefore, atoms have color, which is, of course, not not true. Not a great example, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you look at a uh, all of these new particles that they discover every day, they give them different letters and colors all the time. It's true.
1: <laughs> it's perfect. It's amazing.
0: Although they're ideological colors, but uh, <laughs> I thought I would throw that out there. Um, false dilemma.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, false dilemma. Now, a dilemma, as the name states, is basically when you have two options, say A or B. Now, a real dilemma occurs when you really do only have two choices. There's only... You know, option A or option B. Now, a false dilemma occurs when someone presents two alternatives, A and B, as if they're the only two, and when in fact they're not the only two. So, someone presents option A, option B, and they try to, you know, convince you that option B isn't good. Therefore, you you should accept A. And the dilemma is false when there are actually more alternatives than just A and B. And there are several variations on this. Uh, one common one is the perfectionist fallacy where someone would uh, would say that either something has to be perfect or you have to reject it. For example, someone might say, "You know this health reform bill is full of all these problems. it will never solve all our health care reforms uh, or issues, therefore we must reject it. and that be a false dilemma because we don't require you know something that solves all our problems or nothing. There are other alternatives. We could have something that works, you know, good enough. Another sort of historical example is one that occurs in the Apology of Socrates, in the dialogue. Uh, Socrates has been found guilty, sentenced to death, and naturally his friends are rather sad about this, and they're, you know, pretty worried. And so, being a concerned friend, Socrates tries to convince them that there's nothing to worry about. He says, essentially, friends, uh, there are basically two options. Either I go, you know, to a, a better place, what today we, we call like a heavenly place, or I go off into, you know, um, nothingness where eternity is but like a single night, a dreamless sleep, and neither of those are in the fear. But, of course, looked at, you know, uh, sort of, you know, in our modern perspective, there are other alternatives as well. He could, you know, one could die and end up in hell or end up in some sort of, uh, or when they used to have the Tales from the Crypt, there's one uh, episode that stood out where when you die, you don't, you you stop moving, but your consciousness remains. You're there, like still in your body, but you can't move. And it kind of ends with this—you know, you can see the bone saw coming down on the guy, you know, slicing him up. And of course, that would be pretty pretty horrible. There would definitely be something <laughs> something behind.
0: Right. I remember that show well. It was one of my favorites. It was
1: pretty pretty good.
0: Ah uh, the first Danny Elfman did the music for the intro, and he was one of my musical heroes so
1: I think he does the music for everything by by law. I think it's required
0: <laughs> well, you know uh Wango Buengo was one of my favorite groups growing up oh yeah all right, gambler's fallacy
1: uh gambler's fallacy In addition to uh you know prostitution is what makes las vegas uh you know stay in business basic idea is this um first though two concepts. It's what's known as the law of large numbers, which seems kind of boring. But the basic idea is that when you're dealing with things that involve, you know, chance probability, the more instances you have, the, the more the results uh, match what you'd expect. To be a little clearer about that, the idea is that imagine flipping a coin. If I took three coins and I threw them down and they all came up heads, It'd be kind of unusual, but not shocking and amazing. And the idea is, the more coins you tossed, the more it accl- approached the 50-50, you know, probability. Also, along with this is what's known as predictable ratio, which is basically a fancy way of saying the results you'd expect if nothing but chance determined the outcomes. So, in the case of a coin toss, you'd expect, you know, half heads, half tails. Combining those two together. The more times you have something happen, you know, say a random like flipping a coin or rolling dice, the more it approach the results you'd expect. So again, if you threw down three coins and they're all heads, unusual but not amazing. And if you did if you tossed a thousand coins, you'd expect like four hundred and ninety heads and maybe five hundred and ten tails. Now getting to the actual gambler's fallacy, it occurs when someone believes incorrectly that the past events in a series that involve, you know, this predictable ratio affect the next event in the series when in fact there's no connection. The example I always use in my class is playing roulette. Suppose someone's playing roulette. The odds of winning in roulette, you know, picking one number, are 1 in 38. And so if a person's lost 10 times and they say, okay, I've lost 10 times, I'm due to win, they're committing the gambler's fallacy because they're mistakenly believing that the past outcomes affect the current outcome, which it doesn't, because their chance of winning on the 11th spin is still 1 in 38, and their chance of winning on the 12th spin is still 1 in 38. Interestingly enough, or boringly enough, I saw a History Channel show on on gambling. They had several on this, and they had one of the owners and managers, and he actually said this. He says, "We're our business is based on the gambler's fallacy. People come in and they lose for a while." And they think they're due to win, but of course they're not. You know, their chance of winning the next time is the same as the first time. So the gist of the gambler's fallacy is when someone thinks that things are going to change, when it, or be different, uh, when in fact they're not.
0: Genetic fallacy.
1: Oh, the genetic fallacy. This derives its name from Genesis. It's the view, the mistake, that the origin of a claim somehow discredits the claim itself, that some perceived defect in this origin somehow discredits it. Now, in many ways, the ad hominems are a form of genetic fallacy, because the idea of the ad hominem is you attack the source of the claim, the person making it, and reject the person's claim. The way the genetic fallacy is often separated is that genetic fallacy is generally taken to include groups, whereas the ad hominem which literally means against the man, is taken as uh, an attack on an individual. Whereas genetic, genetic fallacy is taken to include things like organizations, groups, and institutions. So, for example, if I say, Ted claims that the reform bill is a bad idea, but Ted's a Republican, so he's wrong, that'd be an ad hominem. If I were to say, the Republicans claim that the reform bill is a bad idea, they're Republicans, so they're wrong, That'd be a genetic fallacy if where the origin of the claim is taken as discrediting the claim, when in fact it does not. Now, of course, where a claim comes from, you know, if a claim comes from, say, the National Enquirer, it can give you grounds to doubt it, but it doesn't actually disprove the claim.
0: Or the L.A. Times or New York Times, for that matter, these days.
1: <laughs> True, poor New York Times.
0: But... <laughs> All right. Guilt by association.
1: Oh, guilt by association. The basic idea here is that it cashes in on the fact that when something, an idea, a person, a claim, is associated with something negative, then we generally tend to want to reject that claim or idea based not on any flaws in the claim or idea, but based on that association. For example, one thing I've often seen in debates over, you know, atheism versus, you know, belief is people sometimes point out that Hitler supposedly was a Christian. And they'll say, therefore, Christianity is mistaken or flawed or awful. But, of course, the mere fact that, you know, Hitler supposedly was a Christian, that doesn't prove or disprove anything about Christianity itself. It's merely a guilt by association. Similarly, if if people point to the you know the researcher who sent those emails uh, had the, well, didn't send but had the emails hacked regarding you know the, the climate uh, issue and the temperatures and and they say well he's associated with the you know the concept of global warming therefore it's mistaken that'd be guilt by association you know although we're judged by the company we keep our company doesn't prove or disprove the claims we make
0: right and all of that is a distraction, really, away from the real issue that that there are people with ill intentions using both sides of this to to push through a a banking agenda and uh, make a lot of uh, elites even more wealthy.
1: Yes, yeah, pretty much. Or as they say, you know, as the old saying goes, the rich get richer, the poor get get poorer. Um, I'm sure there's a fallacy in there somewhere but anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just
0: like a, well yeah you know um sometimes though stereotypes or sayings like that you know they are said because even though they may be logical fallacies there are oftentimes there can be a, a grain of truth in them
1: yes yeah something could be interestingly enough things can be uh bad reasoning but actually be the claims could actually be correct, they're just not, not well supported. So for, I mean, to use kind of a stupid example, if I say, uh, today is Saturday because I'm drinking tea, no real connection, but today in fact is Saturday, and I actually am in fact drinking tea.
0: <laughs> hasty generalization.
1: <laughs> ah, hasty generalization, a classic problem. It's similar to the problem in bias generalization. Where you know the mistake being made in bias generalization is the sample is not representative. In the case of a hasty generalization, the sample is not large enough; it's not adequately sized to support the generalization being made. It's sometimes known as the um, you know hasty induction or not looking before you leap. The basic idea is that someone takes a sample that's inadequate and leaps to a conclusion about this. Uh, stereotypes, for example, are often grounded on this sort of bad reasoning. And uh, here's here's an example of one from my own experience. Uh, years ago, before I was going off to, to my undergraduate uh, you know, college in Ohio, I was you know, riding along in my 10-speed, cruising around, and a station wagon, a blue station wagon, comes up behind me, and they're honking and yelling at me, and I'm trying to get out of the way, and they ended up bumping into me and throwing me onto the lawn, and I looked at the plates in the car, and I saw I was from Ohio, and I was going off to Ohio, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to go to a state full of psychotic crazy drivers. And so I, you know, I, I go to Ohio and then I'm you know, running with a cross-country coach and we're running along you know, on the sidewalk and I hear honking behind me and another car, a blue car, but not the same blue car, pulls up onto the sidewalk and almost kills both of us. We had to leap over this stone wall to get out of the way. And I thought on the basis of you know, these two drivers that drivers in Ohio were crazy and psychotic. Now, it turned out I was correct. This later turned out to be true, but it was a, but it was a hasty generalization because I only had two examples. You can't leap from two samples to the whole population. Ignoring a common cause. Oh, this one is a, a mistake in causal reasoning. What occurs is this. You have two things occurring, uh, A and B, and what a person does is, instead of considering the possibility there's a third factor, say C. Causing both, they simply leap to the conclusion that A causes B. For example, suppose somebody's got a, a fever and they've got a sore throat, and they say, Ah, my fever is causing my sore throat. In that case, they're making a mistake, possibly, because they should consider that there may be a third factor, namely, say, a virus, that's causing both the fever and the sore throat. So the idea is when you have, you know, or take a Computer example: Suppose someone's having a problem with their their microphone, and their computer is crashing. And they say, "Well, the microphone is causing my computer to crash." Well, it may be an underlying factor, say Windows, (laughs) or uh, you know, a virus or something that's actually causing both both problems. So it's always important to consider that possibility.
0: As a former network engineer. We used to have a saying called ID10T errors.
1: Is, is that like a user error?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you yeah. write it, if you write ID10T on a piece of paper, it spells idiot. <laughs> Ignore. Oh, I just, I just uh, said that one. Uh, middle, <laughs> middle ground.
1: Oh, uh, middle ground occurs. It's based on the the natural uh, assumption that somehow compromises or the middle position is correct. For whatever reason, you know, in a way kind of going back to the false dilemma, we seem to have a, a tendency to believe there's two options, you know, one side or the other. You know, We often talk about both sides of the issue. And from this, it's almost natural to believe that if there are two sides, the correct thing must lie somewhere in the middle. But of course, the mere fact that something's in the middle between two positions doesn't necessarily make it correct. For example, suppose um, you know you are driving somewhere and someone rear ends your car, and they you know they do a lot of damage, and you know, your insurance company says they'll they'll take you know a thousand dollars to fix it, and the person says, well, I'll pay you a, a dollar, and but let's compromise a middle ground you know between one dollar and a thousand dollars. Is five hundred dollars and fifty cents. That's fair. Well, even though it's in the middle, it would not be fair if it if it costs a thousand dollars to fix your your bumper or your car. That's pretty much what it should be. Or similarly, like with uh, to be a little give a little better example, take the case of like politics. If someone proposes you know one plan for health care reform, and someone proposes like you know another one, like say doing nothing doesn't mean the middle ground is correct. The middle ground can be quite mistaken.
0: Misleading vividness.
1: Ah, misleading vividness. Now psychologically, people tend to remember things that are vivid, that really stand out. And what this how, the way this works psychologically is that people will tend to weigh vivid traumatic incidents, you know, incidences, evidence, etc., far more than they will weigh Less vivid statistical evidence. So what people do, basically, if you're using a scale, you could have like on one side all sorts of statistical evidence, but kind of boring, just statistics. Then if you have like a really vivid incident, people tend to give that far more more weight because it's far more vivid. For example, when uh, this uh, over this Christmas uh, break, I was in uh, Puerto Rico when they had the the bomber trying to you know the guy with the bomb in his underwear. And, you know, people ask me, you know, you're going to be flying so soon after this, aren't aren't you afraid? Isn't that really scary? And, you know, true, someone trying to blow up an airplane is very vivid and very scary. But, of course, even though that's scary, to believe that somehow, you know, I'm going to get blown up in the plane would be to fall victim to that that fallacy. Because if you look at the statistics, even with people, you know, trying to do that kind of stuff, flying is still very safe.
0: But it's It's like. It's like saying, uh, well, don't walk over there. Lightning just struck there.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because statistically, the odds of striking there are astronomical. But, of course, what sticks out in people's minds are things that are very dramatic. Or, for example, if I were to say to people, don't get up on ladders because you'll fall off you know, and tear your, your tendon. I mean, true, that can happen. But, you know, I'm always going to remember that. I'm always going to be now afraid of ladders. Um, but statistically, you know, it's unlikely. And well, so the you, idea. Okay. A personal.
0: Uh, go ahead. Did you want to say, add to that?
1: Oh, so like I mean, so one thing we have to do the way to defend against this is to you know when we're thinking about things like what we're doing like in terms of like um, what we do in life or how what sort of things we buy, we have to ask, am I making this decision based on you know good reasons and good evidence, or am I being sort of overwhelmed by a particular vivid example? And this often also leads to stereotypes. For example. Uh, I've had friends who've, you know, dated someone who turned out to be, you know, terrifyingly psychotic. And they're like, wow, you know, everybody, you know, I'm never going to date again because it's always going to be a nightmare and horrible. And, of course, what they're remembering is that one horrible incident and not thinking about it statistically. That it's less likely that it's going to be terrible and psychotic, maybe.
0: Okay. Personal attack, or is that the same as ad hominem?
1: Uh, personal attack is a particular type of ad hominem. The idea is essentially you're attacking something, as the name implies, about the person. Uh, so, for example, if someone says, oh, uh, you know, Ted agrees with the health care reform, but Ted's a jerk, so the health care reform going to be, be mistaken, that would be a personal attack fallacy. And it does fall into the general family of ad hominems because the attack is not on the person's claim, but on the person themselves. And the way to defend against that is ask yourself, is this attack being made on the claim or is it simply an attack on the person? If it's an attack on the person, then it would be a, a fallacy, with one exception. It's legitimate, as we saw, when we talked about argument from authority, to consider someone's credibility. If you can show that a person is biased, lacking in knowledge, or otherwise lacking in credibility, it doesn't prove their claim is wrong, but it gives you grounds for being skeptical. So if someone were to say, um, you know, this witness is is a known record of lying. They're also in the pay of this you know of this person. Therefore, we should consider you know their claims very carefully and be skeptical. That would not be a fallacy. That would just be be good sense.
0: Poisoning the well.
1: Ah, poisoning the well. It's a form of ad hominem, and it gets its name from a practice developed and perfected by the Romans. The idea is basically this. Suppose you're, you know, a Roman, um, you know, leader, and you've got uh, you know, a village near your border that's causing some trouble. You can march a legion down there and put them to the sword, but that'd be a lot of work. A quicker way to do it, a cheaper way, is to get like a, a dead goat, put a rock on it, throw it in the well. Because when people drink out of that well, they become sick and poisoned, and it kills them. Now the fallacy doesn't involve putting a dead goat in your opponent's well, although I guess that could be kind of effective. The fallacy is to try to discredit in advance what a person is going to say by attacking them before they say make their claims. So it's sort of a preemptive ad hominem. The idea is, the person hasn't made their claim yet. What you do is you attack the person in the hopes that they will be poisoned as a source, so people will, you know, reject what they say.
0: Post-hoc. And if you would no. give the full Latin name of that, I would appreciate it.
1: Sure. It's, uh, full Latin is post hoc ergo proctor hoc, which means after this, therefore because of this. Now, outside of science fiction, for the most part, a cause does have to occur before its effect. But the mistake being made here is when a person uncritically assumes that because A occurred before B, that A must have caused B. Now, in many most cases, people don't make like really big mistakes like this. For example, no one's going to say, "Well, you know, you were in, I was in Puerto Rico over Christmas break, therefore, when it's cold in Florida now, therefore, it caused it to be cold." Yeah, that, that's kind of ridiculous. Where people fall for this though is when the connection seems almost reasonable. Also, people fall for this. In terms of superstitions, a lot of superstitions arise from this. I'll give uh, two examples. Uh, one is, of course, you know, like when people say, like, smack their TV or something and it seems to fix it, sometimes that can just be a coincidence. They hit the TV and then it works, it may just be coincidence. Another example uh, years ago, when I was running, uh, you know, running track, we were at one of the, the meets and one of the hurdlers, she was, you know, tying her spikes. And the laces snapped. And of course, if you're wearing spikes and you're running on a track without laces, you'll, you might get a couple steps before they stick to the track and they're left behind. And so she needed laces. But the only thing nearby was a 7-Eleven. So we, you know, we went there, and the only shoelaces they had were these little Sylvester and Tweety shoelaces. Very attractive, in fact. So she laces up her shoe, goes, and runs you know, the fastest race of her life. And so she thinks, wow, I put these shoelaces in, They made her run fast. Therefore, they're magical. Now, of course, that would be post-hoc. The mere fact that she ran really well with those shoelaces doesn't prove that they actually had any effect, beyond just keeping her shoes on her feet, of course.
0: So you're saying that that Dumbo's feather wasn't the cause of his flight?
1: No, Dumbo's flying caused him to fly. Oh, actually, the magic of Walt Disney caused him to fly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, people, all to use a a, uh, sort of more everyday example, Think about, um, for example, like some folk remedies. You know, some may say, you know, drinking tea will cure your cold. And they'll say, oh, well, I drank some tea and my cold was gone. Therefore, it caused that to, to happen. And that'd be post-hoc, because people tend to think, you know, I did something and then an effect occurred. And of course, they tend to remember where the effect happened and forget the other times when it didn't happen. And so it's, it's a common common occurrence. And the way to be on guard against it is to ask yourself, okay, this happened and this happened, but was there any real connection? And the and way then,
0: we and then you have to find out if it's repeatable.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Because that's the the hallmark of the scientific method is that you can keep testing that, and keep repeating it. So if tea really does cure colds, then in general, when people drink tea, there should be a correlation between tea drinking and colds going away. And never if, mind,
0: and... never mind the specifics about the type of tea.
1: Well, you'd want to include that, too. You know, is it Earl Grey? You know, like, <laughs> right. Because I, noticed, I noticed, you know Captain Picard never had a colt. So maybe it is the magic of Earl Grey that heals people.
0: Questionable cause.
1: Ah, questionable cause. This is kind of a, um, a general category. You, any of the mistakes in causal reasoning, like post-hoc, also things like reversing cause and effect, can be put under here, as well as... Um, you know, ignoring the possibility of causation, of coincidence. In some cases, one thing happens, another thing happens, and there's really no causal connection. And so when people, you know, when things are happening, people should always ask, is there really a connection? Am I reversing cause and effect? Am I ignoring a common cause? Am I assuming, you know, a common cause? Am I merely making a mistake with coincidence? For example, one example, uh, I remember from when I was a freshman was that it's claimed that hemlines on women's skirts correlate with the stock market but of course there's really there's no causal connection you can't control hemlines by coring the stock market and you can't take over the stock market by controlling hemlines or like another example when um, when ice cream sales go up more people die from drowning does this mean that ice cream – it's true. It's true. Ice cream sales go up more deaths by drowning. Does it mean that ice cream kills people? No. Uh, what happens is, of course, ice cream sales go up in the summer when it's warmer, and, of course, people swim more in the in the summer, and hence they're in the water more, so people tend to drown a bit more. So ice cream is safe, and you can still eat the ice cream.
0: Safe with a a sugar and heavy fatty foods caveat.
1: Oh, how can that hurt you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mr. Jogger. Um, <laughs> let's see. Let's go with uh, red herring, but let's also discuss the history and origin of
1: that. Uh, red herring gets its name from kind of an interesting um, you know, scenario. When people train hunting dogs, let's take, for example, beagles, what they typically do is is, you know, Train them to look for a particular type of animal, say a rabbit or you know a raccoon or uh, birds or something and of course, you want your dog to be able to find what you're looking for let's say a rabbit, and the way they train them, at least the story goes, is they would you know create a trail and they would take a red herring, which is a, a very stinky sort of rotting fish, and they would rub it across the trail and If the dog could follow the trail even through the stinky rotted fish then that would be a good good hunting dog. Now in the case of the fallacy, it's not that you take a stinky fish and like hit your opponent with it, although that, that would serve to distract them. The idea is this. When a person is talking about an issue and they'd rather not continue talking about that issue, they, they want to change it to some other subject, what they'll do is they'll throw in another issue, like a red herring, to lead the person off that subject. It's often done by, typically by politicians. Uh, For example, when they're being interviewed on the news and they're asked about something they'd rather not answer, they'll switch to some other issue to try to get the conversation onto something else, for example. And if they're smart, what they'll do is they'll try to to get the issue to something similar so people don't notice the switch. Uh, For example, suppose somebody is asked during an interview, has the Patriot Act made America more safe since, you know, 2001. And a person might say, I can say with certainty that America is still the safest country in the world. Now it seems related but they're not the same issue. The first issue is, did the Patriot Act make us safer? And the other issue is, is America still safe? And they're really not the same issue. Now you can also use this on a personal level. For example, um, suppose, you know, I've stayed home all day, playing Warcraft. And I was supposed to do several projects around around the house and home. And uh, you know, here um, you know my girlfriend pull in and I realize crap, I've been running, you know, instances all day and I haven't done a damn thing. And so I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch hell. But when she comes in, I realize that she was supposed to go shopping, but she didn't buy any groceries. And she says, Hey you didn't do any of the projects and I say, Well I, I noticed you don't have any groceries. I'm using a red herring. Because the issue is my laziness, and you know, my playing Warcraft instead of doing the stuff I was supposed to do, and the fact that she didn't get the groceries has no no actual relevance.
0: Speaking from your own personal experience, and it doesn't uh,
1: actually it doesn't work actually. <laughs> amazingly enough
0: yeah and you know like you said you know just because you study and teach logic doesn't mean you're immune to using some of the fallacies
1: <laughs> and, and also i found that you know they can actually be if you're you know, trying to get away with stuff they can be quite a, kind of effective but I, I you know i must say i do feel guilty when i use them so i, I do feel that guilt <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's pretty funny because you, you know, you more than just about anybody, you would be completely aware of every step of the way on how you're doing it. And most people are completely unaware of these things when they're using them.
1: Because I always think about the movie True Lies when, you know, know, the character played by Arnold, he's asked by his wife, you know, did you kill people? He said, yes, they were all bad people. And so when people ask me, do you use fallacies? And I say, yes, but I I feel really bad afterwards. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Relativist fallacy.
1: (laughs) Uh, The relativist fallacy occurs when, um, well, relativism is, is the view that truth or, you know, moral correctness is relative to the culture. And a variation of this subjectivism is a view that truth or, you know, moral worth or beauty, you know, some sort of value is relative to the individual. Now, the mistake being made here assumes something contentious, namely that relativism or subjectivism is incorrect. So if someone were to say, you know, for, for example, suppose someone's taking a test and they're cheating on it. Another student says, hey, you know, the cheating is wrong. And the person says to the student, well, cheating, cheating may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. And they believe that it's not wrong for them because they, they think it's relative. That would be this mistake. Now. This is kind of a contentious fallacy because there are you know, philosophers uh, who do argue for relativism. And if relativism is correct, then it, this would not be a fallacy because if something is true for me and not true for you, there's no mistake. And, um, for example, the, the sophists uh, had that view that you know, truth is, is relative and you know, there's no objective truth. And so there would be no mistake being made there. And so this is, you know, is a somewhat contentious fallacy.
0: Hence, they were the sophists. I guess that would be, uh, isn't that, what is that, begging the question or something? Or you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the sophists are, are actually still with us. I mean, I, like I tell my students that, you know, people generally don't call themselves sophists today. But we do have, you know, we call them like spin doctors and campaign managers
0: yeah, uh, and PR managers and marketing managers and, uh, oh, I can think of a few politicians. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they do the same thing. You know, they basically, you know, they're not paid in silver anymore, but they're, you know, paid in dollars. And they offer the same thing to teach people how to craft an image in order to, to succeed. And, you know, there's good money in that. Like I tell my students, I say, if you can master these, these fallacies and learn how to do this, you have a, a bright career as a sophist ahead of you.
0: Yeah, and there is hidden humor there with Sophis taking silver for listeners who are familiar with my show. There, I've had some guests on who have gone deep into the uh, history and study of, of that whole issue. Lots of uh, logical fallacies floating around in the media these days. Um, let's go with another good one, Slippery Slope.
1: Oh, the Slippery Slope. There's actually two versions of this. One is the classic Slippery Slope. The other one is known uh, as the Vietnam fallacy. I'll do the slippery slope first. It's sometimes also known as the uh, camel's nose because, you know, at least according to, I guess, people who know about camels, once a camel gets its nose in your tent, it's hard to keep the rest of the camel out of the tent. Now, as a fallacy, it gets its sort of idea, the metaphor here or the um, image based on if you're on top of like a really slippery slope, you know, like an icy hill, and you take a first step and you fall, zoomp, you're down at the bottom. Now the fallacy is this, it's when someone claims that one thing must inevitably fall from another thing without actually giving an argument for the inevitability. Typically this is done when the thing that's supposed to be inevitable is supposed to be really bad. For example, uh, I've been involved in lots of debates about same-sex marriage. One thing that people almost inevitably bring up is that if we allow same-sex marriage, the next thing you know people will be marrying goats and turtles and god knows what else but of course there's a long way between allowing you know same sex marriage and having people marrying goats I, I don't see that as likely to to happen or as another example a person might say we can't allow any censorship at all because if we censor anything the next thing you know they'll be burning books in the street and of course that's a slippery Slope, you know, allowing
0: allowing medical marijuana. The next thing we'll have a, a heroin shooters on every corner.
1: Well, that's actually true. So that's not. not really <laughs> 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 no, that, that, yeah, that would be that would be the fallacy. <laughs> uh, now, it's it sort of it's uh, related fallacy, which is known as the Vietnam fallacy. It got its name because the way um, you know the people in in, in you know. The, uh, power at the time reasoned was we were in Vietnam, you know, with so many troops, and we had to keep we had to keep staying the course. It can also be called like the staying the course fallacy, or the you don't change horses midstream fallacy. And the idea is that we must keep going on the same policy or procedure, not because of any good reasons for it, but simply because we've we've been doing that. Now, of course, we know this is a mistake because we have the saying. Throwing good money after bad. If something's a bad idea, keeping to do it is an even worse idea. And to use an analogy, if someone's driving, you know, takes a wrong turn, and they're driving the wrong direction, and they say, "Well, I got to keep going this direction because I've been going this direction a long time," they're just getting more lost. They're not making any any progress.
0: Great analogy. Special pleading.
1: Uh, special pleading is basically when a person they want to be like exempted from something or they want to get special treatment but they don't have any actual justification for it. essentially what they're they're doing to put kind of in its simplest and crudest form they're basically saying that i deserve an exception because i'm um, i'm me and of course it's not a good argument because everybody is who they are and everybody can make that argument uh, for example recently um, you know, the building where my department is, is going through renovation. And they promised that we'll have a really, really nice place. And they moved us to a not so nice place now. But uh, suppose during the packing, I were to say, well, since I am, a, am an esteemed, you know, academic, I cannot, you know, soil my hands with this packing. So therefore, you know, I should not have to do this. That can be seen as sort of special pleading because everyone else is in academics too. And there's nothing special about, about me. You know, I should not deserve an exemption from that. My colleagues, though, being truly esteemed, did deserve the exemption. Spotlight. Ah, the spotlight. This works pretty much just like uh, what it's named after. It's namesake. You know, when a spotlight is shining on someone on stage, they're illuminated. Everything else is in darkness. And so all your attention is on, you know, that person. Now, the spotlight fallacy is usually fueled by the folks in the media. The idea behind this fallacy is it's when someone takes that's you know, something that has given a lot of attention, as I say, in the spotlight as somehow serving as evidence that that is something very common or, you know, essentially it's, it's kind of like Casey generalization, where someone says, you know, uses a small amount of evidence to take that as a point of general claim. Now in the case of the spotlight what a person does is they reason or badly reason like this. There's a lot of attention, particularly in the media being paid to this, and therefore this is something important or something that's likely to happen. For example, the, um, given the coverage in the media of say the underwear bomber or terrorism, we would think that terrorism was really likely. Like I mentioned before, when I was flying, you know I was going to fly home after the uh, underwear bomber thing. And the people ask me, you know, are you afraid of flying? And I said, you know, no, uh, not at all, because statistically I'm more likely to be killed on my morning run going to the airport or slipping and falling in the bathroom of the airport than I am to be killed by a terrorist. It's just that the media really focuses on on terror. And so the idea is kind of like misleading vividness, um, and, or in we look at what people are paying attention to and see it as somehow more likely or more important when it need not be. Straw man. Ah, oh, the straw man. This is a, a classic one. The idea basically is this. When, suppose I want to argue, attack, or criticize a person's position. Now, one way I could do this is to actually attack or criticize or argue against the person's position. But that can be kind of hard because then i have to know what their position is and I'd have to actually argue against it.
0: You have to re- do some research and reading and study at that point basically, right? Or or get a lot of clarification at least.
1: Yes, yeah, so and that's that's hard. You know, and i'm kind of lazy. <laughs> so i just want to attack them without any real effort. So the way i can do a straw man is instead of attacking their actual view, their actual position, what i do is put in its place a distorted exaggerated uh, view, that's not really their view or their position, and attack that instead. Now, the reason why people do this is because it works. One reason is, is that, as you pointed out, knowing the actual you know position or view, especially when it's something complex, like, for example, something like healthcare care reform or a philosophical or political view, those can be very complicated, and most people don't know. What those things are, so when someone straw mans a person's view, the audience often doesn't know. And of course, uh, secondly, it's uh, you know exaggerating things, distorting things. So hyperbole can often be very effective because people often expect that. For example, if we take the uh, healthcare you know issues, when they brought up the notion of death panels. Now, if you look at the actual language, there's nothing in there about death panels, not surprisingly. But, of course, most people haven't read, you know, the proposals because it's really long and really boring. And, of course, death panels are scary. So people are manning the proposals in that manner in order to create fear and also to get people to, you know, reject those proposals. And so a straw man involves presenting that distorted or exaggerated view. It's commonly done in, in politics, very common.
0: Well, I see it a lot in academia as well. Let's say if uh, somebody presents a piece of work, and you know, and being a writer myself, it's usually an academic or a, a book or something like that. And they'll have all of their work or citations in this book. And then what the person does is that, from their own background and their own history of study, they'll say, "Well, I've studied all of this other material." and therefore what you're presenting can't be correct, even though I haven't read it. I already know that it can't be correct.
1: Yes, it's like a a friend of mine used to joke, let me tell you what you think, and then I'll tell you why you're wrong type of approach.
0: Right. (laughs) All right, uh, let's... uh, A couple more here. Two wrongs make a right.
1: This one is based on... uh people's notion that if someone would be willing to do something wrong to them, they can do that wrong to the other person, even if they don't need to do that in self-defense. To be a little clearer, the idea is this. Suppose um, you know a person reasons like this. It's okay for me to do something to another person because they would do that to me. And of course, that's a mistake in reasoning. Why so? Well, let's take a concrete example. Suppose on Tuesday when I you know teach um, you know a lot of classes you know I've, I've taught you know three classes and I'm getting ready for my night class and I find I'm pretty hungry and I go and you know uh, look to see if I brought my, my dinner and I realize that I've I've left it at home so I am without dinner and so I think wait I can go over to um, you know Professor Counsel's office and she's got that little fridge there I'll open her fridge up oh what's in there ooh a little uh, you know leftover beef stew. And so I grab it. But then, of course, being a philosopher, I pause to think, is this okay for me to do? And so I tell myself, well, I'm taking her stew, but she would do the same thing to me. So it's okay. And then I go and cook the stew and eat it. Now, obviously, if it's wrong for her to take my food, it's wrong for me to take her food. And I can't justify what I'm doing by saying that it's wrong for her to do it to me, so it's okay for me to do it to her. That's clearly bad, bad reasoning. Now, this there are two sort of like exceptions or complications. One is self-defense. If you do something to someone to defend yourself legitimately, that wouldn't be too wrong. So, like suppose, um, you know, someone tries to mug you, and you hit them in the face with a brick, and you say, you know, it was okay for me to hit them with a brick because they were trying to kill me. That wouldn't be two wrongs. And, of course, there's also the question about, you know, retribution and punishment. You know, if someone does something wrong, do we have the right to harm them? And some people think, yeah, they believe in retributivism, that we can harm people who've done wrong. Other people, of course, believe that we shouldn't do that kind of stuff. But the basic idea behind two wrongs is that a person believes it's wrong to do, but somehow if they're doing it to someone else, it's somehow okay. But if it's wrong, well, it's wrong.
0: All right, let's see here. What other fallacies didn't we cover?
1: Well, this, um, there's lots of, lots of fallacies out there. In fact, there's potentially thousands of them. Uh, for example, oh, one uh, sort of vari- variation of uh, the red herring is sort of its cousin, the, the smokescreen. And the idea is sort of a rhetorical tactic where instead of like throwing out another issue, in the hopes of luring someone off on that issue, what a person does is piles up, um, essentially piles up issue after issue in the hopes that the person will be kind of lost in the confusion. And that can be kind of effective, it's basically, you know, the reason they call it smoke screen is like in the military application, you know, if, they're, if troops are under fire they throw out smoke grenades because it's harder to hit something and you can't see it, and it's kind of the rhetorical equivalent of that. There's also, from some other fallacies, um, well, there's various other emotional ones as well, like appeals. Um, for example, there's appeal to jealousy, uh, appeal to guilt, which basically use those those emotions. And there's also other uh, other causal fallacies about causal reasoning. For example, uh, when people believe that correlation is the same thing as causation, that's a fallacy. And of course, there's also the, the uh, Generic one of uh, the non sequitur, you know, does not does not follow. And the basic idea there is that a person, you know, draws a conclusion that simply doesn't fall from the from the evidence. And oh, I mean, there's also lots of them that are simply not not named, you know, because they're not not common enough. But the general idea, of course, is that a fallacy is when the premises, the evidence being offered, doesn't logically support that conclusion. And in theory there's potentially an infinite number of these things. Because there's an, always an infinite w- way to be wrong, and usually only a few ways to be right.
0: Discuss Plato's allegory of
1: the cave. Ah, the allegory of the cave. It's a, essentially what Plato's doing is discussing his theory of knowledge, his epistemology. And what he asks us to imagine is a cave, you know, down in the earth, in darkness. And in this cave, there are people, imagine if you will, they're chained to these these chairs with their heads forced to face forward and they can see ahead of them flickering light and shapes because behind them is a fire. And in front of the fire walk other men holding poles with various objects on them. And there's a wall there. And so the light of the fire casts shadows upon the wall and the people look there and they believe that what they're seeing is real. It is, it is true, because they don't know any better. But if you imagine, if you will, someone in the cave, they manage to work free of the shackles, and because they're loose or they've grown rusty, and they you know, turn their head, they look around, they undo the rest of their shackles, and they're loose in the cave. And they look around, they realize that what they're seeing is shadows, an illusion. And for Plato, that's sort of the first level of this line of knowledge. It's the level of of illusions, of shadow, and interestingly enough, also of art. And this is the realm of opinion, mere belief. Now the person is loose in the cave, and they realize they're seeing shadows. And now they can see the other people in the cave. They can see the fire. They can see the objects. And for Plato, this is the second level, the realm of you know, belief and opinion dealing with the physical objects. Because for Plato, the physical world we live in is only one level of reality. It's more real than the shadows and the illusions, but it's still not the most real. There's the fire, of course, is analogous to the sun, and the objects here are analogous to the physical objects in the world. This is the level of empirical you know, belief and science. Now, the person who's free here, you know, looks up and sees there's a way out of this cave, and they scramble up into the surface world. Now, at first, they can't stand the light of the sun. They can only look at the stars and and the reflections in the water. And for Plato, this is sort of the first level of actual knowledge. This is a level of logic, mathematics, where people can know things through, say, proofs and reasoning and so forth. And... Then the final stage is when the person's eyes have adjusted, they can see by the light of the sun. And for Plato, the sun is the good that illuminates everything. It illuminates the world, enabling people to see. And in the allegory, that world, that illuminated world, is the world of reality, the world of what Plato calls the forms, which are perfect, eternal, and unchanging. And so when the person reaches that final stage, they reach literally a state of enlightenment. And we, of course, still use that term to this day. And they see true knowledge through rational intuition. They simply see the truth because it's lit up. And, of course, we still use that expression. We talk about seeing the light being illuminated. And even in our cartoons, we still draw awareness with a light bulb appearing above people's heads. Now, the case of Socrates he goes back down into the cave by coming out of the light into the darkness he seems confused and he seems unable to play the games of the shadows and so people think of him as being strange and when he's forced to defend himself in the court of shadowy justice he seems foolish and of course the people down there far from being grateful for being told they're trapped and living in shadows they resent it and of course in the case of socrates they kill him and so the allegory of the cave is that metaphor, that allegory, the levels of knowledge, going from the shadows to the physical world, escaping the cave of ignorance, and getting into the world of truth, and finally finding the ultimate enlightenment of knowledge, true knowledge. And then getting killed by people. <laughs> I think the back?
0: moral of the story is uh, don't. Don't go back. <laughs> well, yeah, don't go back. But I think the moral of the story is really uh, don't kill the messenger.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely.
0: Um, let me ask you this: Would it be possible to explain subject and predicate identification?
1: Um, sure. Um, in uh, in the English language, most natural languages have a subject predi- form, predicate form. Uh, it's, you know, put over simplified, the subject take the sentence. You know, the cat, uh, you know, is gray. The subject would be cat the predicate would be gray. Now, behind this apparently simple, you know, statement is a great deal of logical and metaphysical machinery. For example, Aristotle believed and Plato believed that when we attribute equality to things, especially Plato, if we say, for example, that uh, Tom is just, that there is actually the predicate corresponds to a metaphysical entity, namely justice itself. And Aristotle believed that the subject predicate structure of our language was also the subject-predicate structure of logic and also of the world itself. Because his reasoning was in order to have our language be about the world, it's got to match the structure of that world. In order for our logic to be about, you know, things to be correct, it's got to match the metaphysics. And so the view was that we have a subject-predicate language, so we have a subject-predicate reality, a subject-predicate, you know, Logic, and of course, um, this led to the development of the theory of universals, which you know I actually, coincidentally enough, uh, did my dissertation on the problem of universals, talking about that problem. What is it for an individual A to have a certain quality of predicate F? And I wrote a lot of stuff on that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's uh, kind of a complicated topic to get into and explain finitely. We could probably do an entire show on that sometime, couldn't we? Yes.
1: Yeah, so like I tell my students, you know, if they ever have trouble sleeping, I'd be glad to give them a copy of my dissertation and they can read through that. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, go ahead. No one's taking me up on it yet, so, but I'm still waiting. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'll have to take you up on that myself. But it, uh, that's something I would certainly be interested in having you come on the show to discuss sometime. If you'd be interested in doing that,
1: oh, of course. More, you know, like a like any philosopher, I'm always glad to talk. <laughs> <laughs> All just, right, just, just no hemlock. Just no hemlock, though. No hemlock.
0: Oh, no hemlock. Okay, <laughs> yep, talk I,
1: I, but no hemlock.
0: Well, you know, if you study. Uh, uh, Dr. David Hillman's work, uh, *The Chemical Muse*, he's actually shown that uh, hemlock wasn't just used for killing people at varying doses; it was also a great uh, psychedelic and inebriant. Um, it's it's all it's <clears throat> it's the the higher doses that they were using to kill. But in ancient Greece, they were also using it. It appears from the medical literature that's just now being translated that. It was a regular, I don't know if narcotic is the word, uh, regular inebriant regardless. Um, What is the most important idea that you would like people to take away from this interview?
1: I would say um, the most important thing, I think, would be, well, to think, to reflect on things. Because we have a tendency, as I do, tend to believe things and act on things, not on the basis of thought, reflection, you know, and consideration, but based on simply how we feel. Now there's, there's nothing wrong with feelings. Uh, It makes part of what makes us human, part of what gives, gives our life meaning, gives it value. But I think the most important thing is to think and reflect, to be critical about things and to ask ourselves questions like this, you know, I'm really, really angry about this, but am I correct in my anger? Is this something I should be doing? Or I feel I'm really scared about this. I'm scared about terrorism, scared about healthcare reform, scared about the environment. But to ask ourselves, you know, should I be scared? And if I am, if I should be scared, what should be done? And so my main advice would be that people should should think and reflect before, before acting and base their beliefs on, on reason and consideration. Now, this doesn't mean abandoning uh, feeling. It doesn't mean abandoning beliefs and faith. It basically means being being careful considering things and taking time to reflect on matters. You know, as Socrates said, to, to steal from him, the unexamined life is not worth living. Unless we know you know, what we're doing, unless we understand ourselves, why we're doing things, we can make all sorts of terrible mistakes, not only for ourselves, for the people we care about, and for the generations to come. And of course, if we make truly catastrophic mistakes, there may be no more generations to come. We may be, be it. So we have an obligation to think, and reason well, not only for ourselves, but for those around us and those who are to come after us to make sure that they do have a better world to come into or a world to come into at all. So I guess my main advice would be reflect and think.
0: And we've been speaking with Dr. Michael C. Labosier, and I apologize if I slaughtered that after you helped me pronounce it at the beginning of the show. Nope, spot on. Oh, good. And uh, this has been uh, quite a fantastic show, and I really appreciate you uh, again putting through all of this twice. And would you please give out the title of your book again?
1: Oh, uh, sure. It's uh, what don't you know, and it's a uh, available in you know paperback, and it's published by Continuum Press. And again, it's a collection of of essays on a variety of philosophical topics. Aimed at you know people with a general interest in philosophy, people who are interested in questions like you know does God exist, uh, questions about ethics and so forth, but you know might have been put off a bit by really complex and you know admittedly boring uh, philosophical books. And so I'm, I'm not claiming to be you know ground or on par with Plato, but I think it's some interesting stuff.
0: And uh, Michael, just so people can find your book by your last name, your last name is spelled L A B O S S I E R E. Yes. And would you like to give them uh, any website or contact information?
1: Um. Sure. I've got a uh, website for for my mostly for my classes and stuff. Uh, so if anybody, actually, if anybody, you know, teaches or you know, philosophy or just interested in it, I have a lot of material there, uh, you know, free PDF files, uh, you know, writing from other philosophers and course notes and stuff. And it's uh, www.opifexphoenix.com. Uh, and it's got a bunch of uh, philosophy stuff there.
0: Cool. And if anybody is interested in a... List of your work on logical fallacies, they can go to wwwnizcoreorg slash features slash fallacies slash, and that's it.
1: That's a lot of slashing. It's it like, is. Uh, it's like, what is that, Axel Rose? <laughs> I mean, slash.
0: Uh, Guns it's... and
1: Roses, that's it. Yeah, Guns and Roses.
0: There you go.